Well, good morning, church family. Glad to have you this morning. Name is Branziski. If I have never met you or don't know you, would love to. I'm the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. It's our heartbeat to be simply about Jesus, and it's our honor to join Jesus as we help others to meet, know, and follow him. In church, I really do want to give you uh, an opportunity to rejoice, but also to be aware of a way that God was working this weekend. And it, I know it goes without saying, as Sam, like, you know, welcomed this, the sea of maroon. I don't know what color that is, you know, over there. And so, like, this is where the church, we say, hey, thank you, Kel, for providing shirts because we know they smell, right? Because they were at a retreat this whole weekend. But I want to let you know, I got the opportunity to drive um, some of the students up on Friday and just to kind of like eavesdrop on some of the worship and things like that and to pray while they're engaging. And if you've been with us for some time, you know, as we've been looking and praying intentionally for the vision that God has given this church specifically for 2025, one of the components of that vision is we want to see the emerging generations captivated with Christ. And I want to let you know, uh, guys, that God is moving and doing a significant work in our youth ministry. It's really, really sweet. So absolutely love it. Um, so, so incredibly grateful and humbled to be part of it. Okay, we're wrapping up the series, More Than Enough. And um, here's how we're going to start this morning. We are going to take a four-question, very obscure quiz, okay? And um, I'm not going to tell you what we're trying to measure on the forefront because I believe it will skew your answers, okay? So it's just real simple. There's a statement, and I want you just to choose A or B, okay? And be honest. Okay, here we go. Question one or statement one. You fall down a great deal while skiing. It is because A, skiing is difficult, or B, Trails are icy. No, 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 no. You don't need to, this, this is just, like, just keep your answers. But that's awesome, okay? Question two. Now, sorry, I cut and paste this from a scientific journal, so I didn't create this, okay? But question two, your romantic partner wants to cool things down. Like, just imagine you had one or have one, okay? Your romantic partner wants to cool things off for a while. Is it because, A... I'm too self-centered, or B, I don't spend enough time with him or her. Shh. <laughs> Question three, you tell a joke and everyone laughs. A, the joke was funny, or B, my timing was perfect. Okay? Question four, which is not on a slide. Is the glass half empty? Or B, is it half full? Okay, who has the majority of A? Raise your hands. Majority B? Anybody not responding? <laughs> okay, so the obscure test is simply what we're trying to see is, do you tend to be more pessimistic or optimistic? 
And I'm not going to explain why A's tend to be more pessimistic or B's tend to be more optimistic. It's just A's basically look at things as like static. This is immovable. It's outside of me. I have no control over it. It's just the way it is. Where B's like, man, the trails are icy. I got to find a way to overcome that. Or yeah, I had something to do with the joke. The joke itself wasn't funny. I contributed to it. So it's just this look as which one do we tend to fall into? Do we tend to be more pessimistic when we look at life or do we tend to be more optimistic? as we look at life, okay? So I want now to kind of like dig a little bit deeper in these questions to start to look at it through the lens of faith, okay? So when it comes to the impact you can make in this life, do you tend to have more of a pessimistic outlook or an optimistic outlook? I don't know if I can really make that much of a difference. And even if I did, it's so small. I got such a past. I don't have the skills. Man, I don't even know enough or whatever it is. Or let's maybe ask it this way. Like when it comes to being influential for Jesus, do you tend to be more pessimistic or optimistic? Last one. As followers of Jesus, should the glass be half empty or half full. So let me share with you, I love the enthusiasm. It was, I want to share with you a story to kind of paint a picture as to where we're going. It was the year 2000. I'm about now three months into walking um, after Jesus. I became a, a believer that fall. And so now it's about December going into January. And I was at this uh, missions conference with InterVarsity. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It's called Urbana. It's this mission conference that would happen every three years. It's about 15 to 20 some thousand students from all over. And it's an opportunity to learn about missions locally and globally and about issues that are happening in the world. And I didn't really know exactly what I was getting into. It's just that a lot of people that I became friends with were like, yeah, we're all going to Urbana. I was like, okay. And I, and I thought Urbana was like some kind of theme. And lo and behold, it's a city in Chicago or in Illinois. Didn't know that. And so there we go. And I remember because I was a college student, I was a sophomore, and I didn't have rent money for January. And I had like no money. Like my bank account was overdrawn. And I remember going home over the holidays and going, Dad, hey, I know you've done so much for me. I need money for rent and food. And so out of the graciousness of his heart and out of my guilt and manipulation, he, I got $400. And so when I was at Urbana, the fourth day of the conference, during one of the sessions, they informed us that in about like eight hours later, we're going to collect this offering. It's going to go towards this issue in a third world country. And I can't remember all of the details. And I'm just like, oh, man. God, I hope you, you do that, right? And all of a sudden, I just felt like the Lord's like, hey, I want you to give that $400. And I immediately just started to go, uh, no, because, you know, I need rent money. I need food. And quite frankly, how would that look to my parents? Like, how irresponsible is his son? You know, like, Dad, I actually, I need more money because I just gave it away willy-nilly to some mission cause. And, and then I found myself in this like, internal debate for what seemed to be a really, really long time, right? Like, I'm sitting here thinking, like, would I give this? Should I give this? And then all of a sudden, I feel like God's, like, saying, no, trust me. And I'm like, God, I do trust you, but come on, really? Like, no, I want you to offer all of it to me. 
me. But like, okay, God, okay, okay. What if I gave some of it, like, let's say 10%. Like, what if I gave 10% of the 400? He's like, no, all of it. Okay, but God, what difference will this even make? Like, this issue is so massive. Like, what, what difference will this $400 check make? It's going to be a big deal for me. I won't have rent money, so I might get kicked out. I will be hungry. God, seriously, what difference? Over and over and over this went. And it came to the time when the KSC bucket started to be passed through. College mystery, love it. Just bucket of chicken should go in there. And they're going around, and I remember it coming to me, and my heart pounding in my chest, and... And I remembered that being a very defining moment. I'm not going to share with you what I did. But I know that some significant things radically changed in my heart that day. Because what I started to consider to be insignificant, small things, what I started to see as pressing needs really helped me to remember and understand and to confess that, man, I don't seek the kingdom first. I seek myself first. I'm seeking my needs first, and, and I'm underplaying what God could actually do. I had to admit and see, and still to this day, that I see my needs, my time, my talents, my money, all those things as a greater priority than the kingdom of God. That is a hard thing to admit. It's a hard thing to see, but it's so incredibly healthy. And God at that time and over multiple times has been asking me to trust him like a child and to see that, hey, if I provided for rent one time, what makes you think I wouldn't do it again? And even if I didn't, do you think like everything's going to fall apart? I also then discovered that I didn't believe that what I could contribute mattered. And then I had to kind of mine out the motives for that. And part of the motive was, well, it, that's just my excuse for actually not doing anything. But what it also showed me was, I don't really understand who God is. That's what I want to talk about this morning. As we've been looking in this series, we've been talking about generosity. We've been looking at how money and our hearts are connected and that if God has our heart, he has our money. And that the way we give and how we respond in generosity is a reflection of if we understand grace and if we have truly experienced grace. And we get to see the, the abundant goodness of God and how he wants to bless us so much. And he's like, test me. Test me if I would not bless you. Give. I want you to do this because I want to open up the, the blessings of heaven down into your life. And Jesus taught that parable. It's like, if you are faithful with a little, meaning worldly wealth, he will entrust you with good, better treasures. The blessings from heaven. So this morning, we have to kind of look at it from a different angle. And yes, we're going to talk about generosity still. But now, as the last two Sundays was specifically talking about our money, our finances, now I'm talking about everything in your life. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your talent, your purpose, and your treasure, all of it. And here's the thing. What we're going to look at this morning, if you take it to heart and allow God to sow this deep, it has the, pot the potential to change the trajectory 
of how you see your life purpose and how you understand the nature and the power of God. The more I study scripture and the more I walk with the Lord, the more I realize that there is no reason why a disciple of Jesus, when looking at the kingdom of God, should ever have a half-empty approach. There should always be kingdom optimism because of the one who's the king in that kingdom. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you, turn with me to Mark 6. And also go to John chapter 6 because we're going to look at two different variations of the story. In fact, this miracle is only the only miracle that you'll see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in all four of the Gospels is because this miracle has two significant pieces to it that are so incredibly important for us to understand, okay? Mark chapter 6, verse 30. So the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away to yourselves to a remote place and let's rest for a while. Because many people were coming and going and they didn't have any time to eat. So they went away in the boat by themselves to a remote place. Now, the context going into this story is pretty significant. Jesus sent the 12 out on this kind of like missionary journey. He's like, hey, I'm giving you my authority. I want you to go out in twos to their surrounding villages. And what I want you to do is I want you to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Raise the dead. And all these things. And like on the forefront, you can imagine like, what? Are you kidding me? Never seen this, never experienced it. But they went and they came back in great excitement. It's like ready to go, Jesus, you have no idea what happened. This is so amazing. Da, 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 da. And as they sent them out, Jesus told them, take with you no extra money. Don't bring extra clothes. Don't bring any food. I want you to learn dependence. As you go out and serve on my behalf, as you're seeking first the kingdom, I need you to trust that I will take care of you. And so they experienced all of that. And as they were coming back to meet up with Jesus, Jesus got news that John the Baptist just got beheaded. And so that was a heavy blow. Because, like, Jesus and John were relatives, but they were also really, really close. And so were some of the disciples of Jesus. They were close to John the Baptist. And so Jesus went away, withdrew for himself, by himself one day, just in prayer, the process. And they come, he comes back down, and disciples and him meet, and all of a sudden they find out the news about John the Baptist. And now you have this, this, this mixture of emotion, High highs and low lows. Like they're amazed and full of joy that God used them. They got to experience the kingdom of God going forward and God provided for them. And yet at the same time, like fear and anxiety and sadness and sorrow that John the Baptist got beheaded. What does that mean for us? They're exhausted. Tired. All of them. And I'm willing to bet they're hungry. Because they didn't have extra with them. And Jesus, being a brilliant shepherd, a brilliant leader, recognizes they need rest. They need to get away for a moment. They need to be able to process all of these things, the highs and the lows. They have to spend some time just interacting with each other. And so he's like, hey, boys, okay, we're all hungry. 
We're all tired. We're all full of emotion. Let's get away to a desolate place, meaning where nobody is, and we're going to go on a little retreat. And you can just almost imagine the... I mean, people constantly around them, always, always needs, always giving, always. Jesus is trending, and there's no getting away from any of this. And the reality was they had no margin. Have you ever felt that? (laughs) Like, you ever use that phrase? Like, man, I just have no margin for... I don't have any margin for time. I have no margin for recreation. I have no margin to golf. That left a long time ago. Like, I don't have emotional margin. I have no spiritual margin. And you just feel like you're always, 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 always on the go. I mean, like, they felt it. The disciples truly felt it. And so did Jesus. And this is the scene Okay, now you've got to picture what happens here, okay? So as we look at this story, keep that in the background of your mind because that's going to help us understand the potential disposition of the disciples in this moment. Verse 33, but many saw them leaving and recognized them and they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd of Jesus and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Oh, my goodness. I can imagine this whole scene. Jesus and the disciples get in the boat. They're like, hey, we're going to cross to the other side. All of these people are going to be behind. We're going to go on a retreat. We're going to be able to relax, have some R&R, laugh and cry, high five, all this stuff. And it's just going to be so great. We need this. And as they're on the boat, they see people, like imagine, okay, it's the Passover season, so there's pilgrims, tons and tons of people traveling to Jerusalem. They have to go around the Sea of Galilee. And you can imagine, like, let's just say, it's a group of 50 people. And they're like, what luck! It's Jesus in the boat! We've heard of him! He's the miracle worker! Oh my goodness, this is awesome. And so they notice that they're going in this trajectory. So they like make haste to get it around. And as they are like speeding to get to the other area, people are like, what's the hurry? They're like, Jesus. And all of a sudden it just grew exponentially to the point there's 5,000 plus people at the shore. And as you're getting closer to the shore, what would you be thinking as a disciple? You've got to be kidding me. Don't act spiritual. Come on. Like, right? You would be like, are you serious? And you wouldn't say what you're saying, but your nonverbals are doing an adequate job. Like, the disciples are looking at each other. They're like, and they're like hoping, hoping that Jesus doesn't have one of those Jesus moments. You know, they're kind of like, I can imagine them going, oh, my gosh, Jesus, just, just pray a blessing over them and let's go. I mean, there's a throng. Like, imagine they get onto the shore. I can see Peter carefully watching Jesus just to see what he's going to do. Like, they recognize kind of like little triggers. Like, if Jesus looks like this, we know. And all of a sudden, they saw compassion. And they went, like, I don't know how else to read that. I mean, like, I truly want to give them the benefit of the doubt and be like, oh, their motives were pure. They were excited. More ministry opportunity. But I do not think at all that was the case because 
we are all human. And do you know how you react when you're very tired and you have no margin for rest? And oh, by the way, let's throw on some hunger on top of that. There's this word that's in the dictionary called hangry. Look it up. It is not a word. Totally. You know, and they don't want to be rude. But they see Jesus moving in compassion. Interrupted. How are you when your life and your plans and your hopes get interrupted? I'm going to veg out this evening. Bing. I'm going to chill this. I'm going to spend some time with the Lord. Interrupted. Or whatever it is. It doesn't even have to be the necessarily spiritual thing. Like what happens when people interrupt your life? When they invade your privacy? What's your reaction? Because we've got to see a difference here. Because what we see now is like how Jesus would respond. Because quite frankly, he's in the same boat. Thank you. That was amazing. Yeah, so bad. But they're literally, he's in the same boat as the disciples. Literally and figuratively. Like he's tired. He's hungry. He's excited that his disciples got to experience it. He's grieving John the Baptist. He's feeling the weight of what's coming. All of it's there. So they have the same internal stuff that's happening. But the way they see people and the way they see this interruption is vastly different vastly different, half full or half empty. What is the response? Jesus sees this with compassion. In fact, we see exactly how he sees him. He sees him as sheep without a shepherd, which is a profound, it's a profound statement. Like, I know it can feel a little insulting when the Bible considers us sheep. But we have to just admit the facts, like we are very much like sheep. Like sheep are rather um, not smart, meaning like they are easy pickings. Like they're, they're very vulnerable. They don't know how to guard their heart well. They give themselves over to certain things. Like, man, if I look a certain way, then I will get this. Or maybe I'll throw my life at this boyfriend or girlfriend, or I'll throw my life into this relationship. And we just kind of like casually give our heart over. And then it gets wounded. That's, that's what it's like to be a sheep. It's like you're defenseless. You don't know how to protect yourself that well. And oftentimes we're directionless. So we're, we're kind of going over here. And then we think, oh, this is the thing. And we go over here. Oh, well, we go over here. And it's just like you get influenced by like the mob mentality. Like we, we are like, like mass-minded people. Oh, no, people don't influence me. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Like, you get caught up in whatever tribe you want to be part of, and, and you flow with it, and it's like all of a sudden, like, this mass mob groupthink mentality starts to happen. That's what sheep do. They follow others without a lot of thought, without realizing where they're headed. They're skittish, they're anxious, they settle for less, and they're stubborn and hard to break out of certain habits. But sheep also have extremely positive qualities. They're priceless. Today, we don't think that way, but that was a huge deal back in that culture. High, high value. They're deeply loyal. 
deeply loyal, and there's a sense of innocence too. I mean, when Jesus sees the sheep without a shepherd, he's moved with compassion. It's a deep emotional thing because he sees people as they really are, no matter what interruption. So that's why we have to ask this question, like, how do we see people? Not just like when we don't have the margin and we get interrupted in that area, but like just generally, how do you see people? Because how you see people will influence. Now listen, like please grab hold of this. How you see people will influence how you see your purpose in life. And how it will influence your concept of stewardship. How you see people will influence your purpose in life. Am I living to help others meet, know, and follow Jesus in whatever context that is? Is everything in my life, my time, talent, and treasure ultimately given over to the Lord to be used by God for the sake of the other? Or is it all for me? Is my time mine? Is my talents for me? This is a significant thing. And so immediately we feel that tension. They're seeing it differently. This story, as you kind of get in a sense of where we're going, this story is not simply the miracle of feeding the 5,000. And it's not just simply a picture that Jesus is the Messiah connecting to how God provided manna in the wilderness. There's something else stirring, something significant that we all need to get a hold of. Look at verse 35. When it grew late, his disciples approached him and said, Jesus, this place is deserted and it's already late. Send them away so that they can go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. Seems innocent enough, but I really don't think they're innocent. I mean, it seems logical, right? It just... Like, hey, there's a lot of people here. It's getting late. There's some villages on the horizon. Let's send them away so that way they can get some lodging, get out of the wilderness and have some food, right? And so that way we can kind of like do our thing. Like, like for sure that's sitting in the back of their minds still. Like Jesus, I don't know if you noticed, sun setting. Like, hey, you can only teach for so long. We shouldn't keep them here that long. Like Jesus, I know you care about them. I know you're moved with compassion, but don't get too carried away. we got to think about their needs. Man, I, I just don't think. I have a hard time just going, oh, that's all innocent and it's all pure. Just send them away, Jesus. Send them away. <laughs> Why did they come to this deserted place in the first place? For a retreat. Here they are. We want to process. We want to talk. People are here, Jesus. You spent now hours teaching. Time to move on. And I love Jesus' response. Verse 37. You give them something to eat. <laughs> Put yourself in their shoes. How would you feel, honestly, in that moment? <laughs> You're like... Is it like, you, did you lose all reason and logic because of you're just in the sea of emotions right now, Jesus? Are you just like sleep deprivation? Like, 
You want us to do what? The disciples' reaction was, send them away. Jesus' reaction was, you feed them. And if you go into John's version, John chapter 6, specifically verse 6, you see that Jesus said this to test them. And because we now know it's a test, what is he trying to stir or to embed into their hearts? Because it says there, he's like, he already knew what he was going to do. He, had, he knew exactly what he was going to do. So he's testing, he's stirring up things in their lives in order to understand not only how we should see people, but how we should see the kingdom of God and how we should see obstacles and problems and opportunities. Like, I would, like, I, I would think, honestly, if, if Jesus said that to me in that context, I'd be like, that's a great joke. And I can imagine just Jesus, like, not flinching, being like, if you look at the tense in the Greek, the you give them something to eat, that word you is in the emphatic. It's like, he's not flinching. He is not kidding. And it's an imperative. It's a command. Are you setting us up for failure, Jesus? Because that's kind of how it feels. And then Jesus goes to Philip, we see specifically, because that's how John unpacks it. Philip is from that area. So Philip has great knowledge of what's available in that region. He knows where they can get rest and food. He knows the cost of these things. And Philip, he's, he's a bit of a realist. Like, we know that by his interactions. He's, you know, like, he loves facts, like data, tangible proof. He wants to weigh them out, the pros and cons, and be like, okay, well, you know, the cons outweigh the pros, not a good idea, let's not do it. And he's like, he just simply goes, he's like, Jesus, like, you told us previously to take no money with us. We have no money on us now, and if we did, it's maybe like two coins. And like, it would take six to eight months worth of wages to even just provide a bite for all of these people. And I can imagine Philip going, ha, I finally made some logical sense for Jesus, and he's going to retract. Like, oh, oh, yeah, I didn't think about that part, Philip. Sorry. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> like, like, I have a Jesus. He's like, no, y you feed him. You do it. Why is this a test? And why do we need to lean in? and answer that question for us. We, friends, listen, we need to learn something about the economy of the kingdom of God and how we ought to see every opportunity in light of who he is. We need to understand what our purpose in life is and also how we should see stewardship with all that we have. You see, Jesus is ultimately after your heart, and he's also after your faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. We are exhorted as followers of Jesus to not live by sight, but by faith. And allow me to playfully work with my analogy. Sight, half empty. We don't have money. We barely have anything to eat. It's getting dark. Jesus, logically, worldly, this makes no sense. We're half full. 
they have experienced so much, haven't they? I mean, at this point, these guys experienced Jesus do some crazy stuff. They personally experienced it. And yet, they're still not seeing it. Like, I, I got to also, like, have this, like, belief that Jesus was hoping that maybe they would have a little bit of faith there. Like, Jesus, we don't know. We don't have the resources. But we saw what you did at the wedding in Cana with the water and wine bit. Like, that was pretty amazing. So, like, I'm pretty sure you could do something. I don't know what, but we believe you. Uh, Jesus, we've seen you to, like, make water come out of, like, we know the stories, water out of rock in the Old Testament. Like, I mean, you could probably do some of that. No, that's not what they did at all. And this statement when they gave it to Jesus, like, 200 denarii would even cover that. It's like they're being snarky and rude. It's, it's not like a, just a factual claim. They're pushing back on Jesus and saying, what you're asking of us is so ridiculous. Have you ever felt that? Like some of the things that God might be inviting you into? That's how I felt at Urbana when I was a 20-year-old. You want me to give up my rent check? I just begged and pleaded with my dad. Like what is this going to do to solve like whatever crisis in the third world? Like I, I got needs. Jesus wasn't going to stay with these guys much longer. He was going to die on the cross for the sins of the whole world. He was going to be buried, and he was going to resurrect to conquer death in the grave in three days. And then he was going to send to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. And he was going to send the promise of the Holy Spirit, where he was then going to entrust the mission to them and to us, the church. What do you think he's trying to get us to understand? That is the question. Jesus could just feed them just like that. He doesn't have to do any of this. He could just say the word and boom, they could just be full of brisket. Man. Yes. But he doesn't. He invites them in to participate in what he's doing. And that's what he does to us. This participation requires kingdom optimism rooted in who he is. Does David versus Goliath make any logical sense? Kingdom optimism, my God, Ken. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. Like, come on, like so many stories. This is, this is what we're invited into. Stop seeing things the way the world sees things. Look at verse 37 of chapter 6 of, in Mark. You give them something to eat. They said, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? And I love Jesus' response back, okay? He says, okay, how about then go and see what you do have? Well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. That is so significant. 
we oftentimes, when Jesus invites us in to participate in something that feels like, man, this doesn't feel logical. It feels risky. I don't know. This feels like wrong. I don't know if this little, my time, what it was a word. I can't change anything in kids' ministry. Giving myself to youth, like what difference can it make? A shoebox, an Operation Christmas Child, what difference can it make? So I'm not, wow, God, come on. I'm broken. I'm sinful. I have all these things in my life. Like, how could you use me? Like, these are the ways we, we see things. But he's like, no, you need to reframe how you see that. These obstacles are opportunities. Your lack of resources is an amazing opportunity for me to show my goodness. He's trying to help them to shift how they see this. So the solution that Philip and the disciples presented Jesus to the problem was send them away. Not a problem. And Jesus' response to the solution was you feed them. Their response was impossible. We don't have enough money. And even if we did, it wouldn't do much. To which Jesus says, well, go see what you have. Don't just shrug your shoulders and tell me, Jesus is saying, that you have nothing to contribute. If you're breathing, you have time. Give your time. Do you have talent? Yeah, but it's not like, you know, I can't preach. I can't do this. Yeah, I gifted you. Give that. Yeah, but God, I'm busted. I'm broken. Great. Take those broken pieces and give that. Go and see, what do you have? Because the temptation is just to simply say, we have nothing. Even what I do have can't do anything. Call it out. That's oftentimes just an excuse for not wanting to give, to not want to participate in fear or whatever else is stirring on. You feed them. What Jesus is trying to say, and it's pretty simple, whatever that something is that you're going to find when you go and see what you have, whatever that is, is more than enough. It's more than enough. Because Jesus is more than enough. Friends, listen, Jesus isn't interested in what you don't have. He's not interested in how in your lack because he's really interested in what we do have because he's trying to produce faith inside of you the faith is small of a mustard seed can move mountains like why how can faith move mountains if it's an itty bitty seed it's not because of the faith is being placed in you or in your talent or in your time no it's because that itty bitty faith is being placed in Jesus who can do the multiplication. Like that is so significant. We focus so much on what we have and don't have, what we can and cannot do, and if it will make a difference or not make a difference. And so we judge if it's going to be of worth or not. And even in this story, in John's version, you see sweet little Andrew, Peter's little brother, I want to say, man, here's a guy. He was hopeful. He's an idealist. He, he, like, probably a little bit of naivety going on. He grabs, sees this boy. He's like, hey, you got some bread and fish. Can, can I borrow that real quick? Takes it. 
And I'm sure, like, he's probably has maybe just a glimmer of hope, like, oh, maybe, maybe, I don't know, here's what I found. And, and I can imagine him coming up to Jesus and Peter looking at him like, Andrew, you really think that's going to do anything? And all of a sudden, like, Andrew in that moment, he's like, oh, yeah, what, what can I, what, what are these for so many? Like, he just lost his hope in it. Why do we tend to always overemphasize the problem? And when we overemphasize the problem, we, we underemphasize what we can bring, the resources around us. And yet worse of it all is we underestimate God. I mean, like if we were just to you know, ever seen those scales, you know, like you put something like ways, and it's like, if we were just to weigh this out and go, which, where would we put the majority of our faith in, in this story? And let's just be real. You got five biscuits, two sardines, 5,000 plus people, and Jesus on this side. Where would your faith be in that moment? So I'm willing to bet this the pessimism, the lack of would outweigh the opportunity. And that's the part where we got to go, man, we can't do that. Because people have always asked me, following God would be so much easier if there was just a formula to follow. If I could get a formula, this plus this equals this, it would make life easier. I have one for you. Five plus two, plus X, which is not algebra, the X is the Greek symbol for Christ, equals more than enough. Go and see what you have. It doesn't matter how much it is. Because when you take that, whatever time, whatever talent, whatever treasure you have, and you bring it to Jesus, he's the one who multiplies He's the one that does it. I love that. Because nothing is off the table. Everybody can play. Every single one of you in this room has something in the realm of time that you can offer to Jesus. Talent that you can offer to Jesus in money that you can offer to Jesus and he will multiply it. Stewardship is all about going and seeing what it is that we do have, not what we don't have and bringing it to him. If we really truly want to be a church that wants to build his kingdom and push back the darkness in the city of Austin, we have to see people the way Jesus sees people and we have to see stewardship the way God intended for us to see stewardship, kingdom-minded optimism. All things are possible. It's more than a bumper sticker. It's more than a pick-me-up verse when life is hard. It's truth.
It may not multiply the way we expect, but it's always going to be exactly what Jesus intended to be. Always. You bring it to him and let him do it. Mark 6, 39 through 41. Oh, how I wish I was able to do this. They sat down. Or Jesus instructed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looking up to heaven, he blessed it and broke the loaves. He kept giving them to his disciples to set before the people, and he also divided the two fish among them. What was that like? <laughs> really? Like if I was a disciple at first, if Jesus gave me like a biscuit and I started to hand it out, I'd probably be like, Here's a little, there's a little, because I, I didn't want to run out, right? I didn't want my row to not have, like, but that wasn't, like how, like, how did that work? Like, did, like, how did, like, seriously, how did it multiply? It's just like my brain's like, come on, I hope we get to Netflix these scenes in heaven. Like, that'd be amazing. But, like, this is unreal, and in, in, in the, the final phrase that we see is that everyone ate when was satisfied. That Greek word is amazing. It talks about, like, it, it, the Greek word, or I can never pronounce it right, I'm going to try, is chortazo, which is to, to gorge oneself. Think of Thanksgiving. Like that's how they felt when they were done eating. Abundance. And you think the disciples would have understood this, but they missed it because Jesus fed the 4,000, same scenario happened. And then two stories unfold in between. One, Jesus was walking on the water. They freaked out. They thought Jesus was a ghost. And God called them out. He says, you, your hearts were hardened because you didn't understand the loaves. You didn't understand what, what happened when I fed the 5,000. That's why your heart is hardened. And, and, and like you start to go, why does that happen? If I don't understand the loaves, like why am I at risk of having a hard heart? It's because you don't expect Jesus to show up. You fail to recognize him for who he is and what he can do. And then Jesus gave him another warning in chapter 8 of Mark and says, hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, right? Like beware of the leaven. And all of a sudden like, the disciples are like, man, Jesus is being passive aggressive. Is he upset because we didn't bring any bread? How do we forget bread? We just fed 4,000 people. Like, like that's what's going on. And Jesus is like, how can you be talking about bread? <laughs> He's like, Levin is like the teaching. They're, they're asking for signs. Like, how are you missing this? Friends, this is why we have to be so like, like cautious of how we approach this text because Jesus is inviting us into something. We need to radically shift how we see people the way he sees people, but then to also go every opportunity is an opportunity for God to shower out abundance through whatever it is that we can bring him. Expect God to move. See him as the creator God. See him as the one who can just speak things into being. Like he can just say, bread, and there's bread. Don't harden your hearts. And the beautiful part of this is this symbolic picture of how he first took the bread and he broke it. 
And from that, he began to distribute. That is a picture of the gospel. How his one body, his broken body on earth, and his shed blood on earth is sufficient for the forgiveness of sins for all humanity, for all time. And that's why we celebrate communion. And so if you have your communion elements, I want to encourage you to grab it. And if not, there will probably be some people passing it out, but you can go in the back and get it. And let's just do this ahead of time. Let's just kind of do the noisy stuff first. Let's just rip the things off. And I am so grateful that Jesus didn't buy into the belief that what good would my sacrifice make? He knew that as he offered up his life on our behalf to the Father, that grace, that salvation would be multiplied to all. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, he took bread. And when he gave it thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. My body broken for you, beaten for you, given over for you because I love you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And do this as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, because as you do this, you're doing it in remembrance of me, but you're also proclaiming the Lord's death for all time. Let's take together. So as we wrap up this series, I want to give us some application. And I'm going to give you four, four points that you can take home and start working on today, but also giving you a real practical and tangible way of taking whatever little you have and giving it to the Lord and watching the Lord do what he needs to do with it. First thing, I want to encourage you, choose to be faithful in the little and the little, again, is worldly wealth. Be faithful in it. So you honor the Lord first. You give to the Lord first. That's one way of you feeding them. Second, go and see what you do have. Go and see what you do have. Not just financial, but time and talent. And check to see if there's excuses that are attached to them as to why you don't. Go and see what you have and give that to Jesus and let him multiply it. Your weakness is not a hindrance. It's actually a strength because that's when the power of God is on display. The disciples felt that weakness. We can't do this, God. 
God's like, I know. Just bring to me what you got. And last, fight to be a kingdom optimist. Just bring what you have to the Lord and trust him with the rest. So one simple way we've done this in the past and we're bringing it back because it's a great season to do it and it's also a way to just stir up generosity in our own hearts and belief and help us to see people the way God sees people and to be good stewards with what we have is you're gonna have these God love you cards on the way out, okay? With these cards, find a way to be generous with them. You're at a gas station, buy someone's gas. I, what I always do with these is I always tell myself ahead of time and sometimes it's a little problematic. I say to myself, whoever's behind me in the line of Starbucks, I'm gonna buy their stuff. And I give it to the barista and I say, hey, I'm gonna cover all of their stuff as they already made their order and can you give this to them? And the barista is usually like, uh, sure. You know, and then they're inquisitive, but simple little things, go to the grocery store, wh- whatever it is, be creative but take the little you have. And I'm telling you, the Lord will multiply it, okay? So Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you that you invite us in to participate with you. Lord, there is so much meat in that passage there. So God, I ask that you would just take one thing, the one thing that you know that each person in this room needs to take in and to apply to their hearts. God, and I ask that you would seal that. God, I pray that we would be a church that sees people the way you see people. God, I pray that we would be a church that would see our resources as we ought to. God, I pray that we would be kingdom optimists and that we would seek first the kingdom of God and and apply the, the little faith that we have and just put that in you and bring whatever it is we have to you and let you do what you do best. Lord, thank you for inviting us in to participate in helping people to meet, know, and follow you. God, would you use this final, these final moments to minister to our hearts, to allow your word to penetrate below the surface of our heart and to get deep. We ask this in Christ's name.